back, everyone, to another episode of Stories uh, with my man Donnie. As always, Donnie, love you, man. How you doing today? Doing well, man. Good to see your face. Likewise, man. Uh, super excited about uh, our guest today. Um, somebody you guys may know very well. Um, one of the greatest pitchers that I've seen uh, watching baseball since I was a kid. Uh, six-time All-Star, World Series champion, Cy Young Award winner, ALCS MVP, one wins leader in MLB twice, over 250 wins. Uh, please welcome the great CC Sabathia to the show. CC, welcome, man. Appreciate y'all. What's going on, fellas? Not too much, man. Blessed. Blessed to have you here. So I just want to dive right into your story, man. We love to start with, with uh, what was it like growing up for you? Uh, I know you're from the Bay, man. So tell us what it was like. Yeah, nah, growing up, I grew up in uh, in Vallejo, California. I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, big Raiders fan. Um, big, like, Bay Area sports fan, period. You know, I grew up an A's fan, Raiders, um, uh, Warriors at the time. Um, but where I grew up in Vallejo was a big baseball town. Like, you know, it's the inner city, it's the hood, but, like, everybody where I, where I grew up played baseball, loved baseball. All our dads were baseball coaches and, you know, involved in the little leagues and around. Um, and it just made me fall in love with the game. We played other sports. I played football. I played basketball, played soccer growing up. But baseball was just always my love. I just always felt good playing it. I always like, felt like I had a high baseball IQ, like I knew where to throw the, the, the ball to which bases and the situations and stuff like that. Um, so it just was always came natural to me, and it was something I always loved to do. We love to ask uh, because we've looked back into our lives and seen uh, – instances and events from our childhood that have shaped our perspectives and how we thought about life going forward? Were there any instances that were maybe painful or shocking to you or things that may have altered your mindset going forward as a child that you had to overcome? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, obviously growing up in inner city, there's always a lot of different challenges. Um, you know, my parents were young when they had me um, trying to figure things out. So I spent a lot of time in my grandparents' house. Um, you know, I, I went to school um, in my elementary school. I went to school from my grandparents' house. Um, so I, I did a lot of things over there. Um, spent the night there a lot of nights and, and different things. But, you know, for me, I had, um, you know, two uncles that lived in that house that were on drugs. And from a young age, you know, um, I could see, you know, the different things, them coming in and out of the house at night, um, different, you know, scenarios and situations that I probably shouldn't have been in as a young kid. Um, that kind of, you know, shaped and hardened me. And, but it, but it really, honestly, like being up, up close and personal to, to that at such a young age, you know, made me, made me understand that I didn't want to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like every time I had, you know, these, these situations put in front of me as a young child, whether it was the drugs or, um, you know, different things with gang members and stuff like that. Um, I was always able to see the other side of it and be like, nah, I don't want to be in the, in that life. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't want to be in jail. I don't want to be in the streets. I don't want to be in, in those type of situations. Um, so let me just stay over here with my little friend group and, and, and stick to my sports. So I was always able to see, I guess, um, a better way, if that makes sense. No, that makes a ton of sense. Um and I feel like in order to keep that perspective of seeing further down the road, having a greater vision for your life, there had to have been people pretty early on that were helping you and guiding you in that direction too. Who are some of the people that you would consider like your teachers or your mentors that really impacted you in a positive way? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, my dad, obviously, um, you know, being a baseball coach um, and, and, and putting the, the glove, you know, in my crib, I guess, and, 
you know, really, you know, putting the love of sports um, in me. Uh, my grandmother, um, for sure, um, you know, she was always a, a huge advocate of mine and, you know, uh, just anything that I did, whether, you know, school, sports, whatever, she was always, you know, there and, and super supportive of me. Um, and my high school baseball coach, I think, if I hadn't had a chance to meet him, Abe Hobbs, when I was 14 years old, I think my life would be a lot different. Um, you know, he was the one that that really taught me about what it was to be a professional, um, you know, what I had to look forward to, you know, after high school um, and just kind of really shaped me and, and molded me into being a man. I'll have to say one more person, uh, the director of my Boys and Girls Club, Mr. Fillmore Graham. He uh, he took a, a huge interest in liking it to me when I was a young kid. Went to the Boys and Girls Club from the time I was, I think, five until I was 15. So for 10 years, every day after school, I went to the Boys and Girls Club until I started playing high school sports. Um, and I was there every day with Mr. Graham, and he, he made a huge impact on my life. I really love that, man, because it really does take a village uh, to get to where we want to go. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, with the way that you were ultimately thrust into the majors, I feel like you were one of the youngest players in the majors when you first got there. Like, what was it like trying to cope with uh, such pressure and, uh, you know, success so early on in your life? Like, what, what was it like going through that? Yeah, it was it was it was uh, it was weird, to be honest, to being the youngest guy in the big leagues at the time. Um, you know, I was I was 20 when I got called up. 26 years old at the time felt super old to me being 20 years old, you know. Um, so it, it was uh, it was it was really tough dealing with that. And I think for me, the, the that's when the, the drinking really started for me was my, my early in my career, my, my first couple of years. Um, I was I was too young to get in the club, honestly. So like if I got snuck into the club, guys would just like stink me drinks to the bathroom and I would suck down like six or seven uh, Long Island ice in the bathroom stall. And that's how I got like that's that's how I would have to drink because I couldn't carry a drink around the club. So I just that's how I really started my binge drinking and the alcohol dependency really took a turn, I think, when I became a professional at, in my early part of my career. CC, uh, it's great to connect with you, man. It's an honor to have you on the show. I'm a an ex baseball guy. Uh, definitely didn't make it near near as far as you did, but I was. It's interesting. I was just uh, with Mike Hampton a couple of days ago and just talking to him and saying, "Man, you gave it such a solid run, you know, for, to to be able to pitch for that long and for you and and for him to to just carve hitters up for that long. It's so rare, and it's it's really cool to have you on here and the timing and the synchronicities." Just to give our listeners some context, uh, Darren and I are virtual. Um, some big changes have happened in the last couple of days. And I know we were, I've been trying to get you on for a little bit. And at the time, you being a Raiders yeah. fan, uh, Darren was playing for the Raiders. That's just not the case anymore. You're sitting here wearing a Yankee shirt and Darren's now going to be playing in New York. So it's, uh, everything is in perfect timing, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, Darren's a Georgia Tech guy. I, got, I have a freshman. My oldest son is a freshman at Georgia Tech right now. Um, so he's playing baseball at Tech and enjoying uh, downtown. I can't, I'm never going to get this kid to move back, bro. Like, he loves downtown Atlanta. He loves I the know, campus. Right? <laughs> the weather, it's over. He's never coming home. <laughs> I believe See, it, see I've heard you say before how, and I love that you say you say this, this line of the, the end of the story doesn't mean anything if you don't know everything that came before that. I mean, our podcast is called Comeback Stories. That's why we start off all of our podcasts asking, tell us what it was like growing up. 
And I'm, I'm familiar with your story and your background. And even going back, if we could stay childhood a little bit longer and just talk about, well, first just talk about the grapefruit tree, because I think that's really significant. Yeah, no. So uh, in my, my grandmother's backyard, um, we had like, we had everything. Like my, my grandparents came from um, Mississippi. They migrated to California. So in our backyard, it was a, a full farm. Basically, we had chickens. We had, I mean, everything. We had our own produce. We had our own plum tree, lemon tree, all these different trees. And right by the right by the back door was this huge grapefruit tree. The first thing you seen when you came in our backyard was this huge grapefruit tree, um, and and it and it kind of covered the the front part of the backyard. And there would be grapefruits that would fall, fall down off the tree all the time. And I would grab the, the 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 ones that fell down and get a folding chair and put it probably like it would probably be like forty feet at the time. Um, and I would pick them up and throw the grapefruits through the back of the the folding chair. And that's really how I started like pitching and, and throwing was those grapefruits in, in, in my grandmother's that's backyard. Amazing. And then what I know your parents divorced at 12. And I remember you saying how your dad was never too tired to, to play catch. But at some point during the divorce, your dad then was out of the picture, correct? So, yeah. So my parents divorced when I was 12 years old and I went from having my dad pretty much every day around to play catch, to hit ground balls, to go shoot jumpers with, to now, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing him as much. And, and uh, you know, he was dealing with his own, um, you know, uh, drug um, dependency problems at the time. And, and I had no idea, you know what I mean? So, you know, um, I had no idea what he was going through. The one thing that I, I feel like my mom did, which was huge, that kept me and my father's relationship together, was she never badmouthed him. She never, you know, once if he was, you know, coming to pick me up for the weekend and couldn't couldn't make it or whatever, she never ever once, you know, made a bad comment about him. And that made me never have ill will towards him. So whenever, you know, he got um, clean and I, you know, I got drafted, you know, in, in, two, in 1998, I was 17. Um, that's kind of when we reconnected. Um, it was, be, I have to give my mom a lot of credit for that because I had no animosity towards him because she never had said a bad word about him. She would always just say, you know, he's trying, he's got different things going on, give him a break. And um, I, I'm, I'm thankful that she was that way because it, it allowed me and my father to have a relationship, you know, the five years after I got drafted until he passed away. Yeah, that is such an important lesson. If you're a listener and you're going through a, a divorce or walking through a, a relationship as, as a coach, I have coaching clients that will often be going through a change like that. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for my parents because they did the same thing. They <clears throat> made the best out of what could have been a bad situation. And no one was talking bad about each other where, you know, you'll get a lot of that projection and confusing as a child. So the fact that your mom did that is so, so huge. Yeah, it is. And, and, it, and it allowed me to have a relationship with my dad. It allowed me to forgive him on my own terms, you know, and not have their mess get in the way of our relationship, you know? So um, I'm very thankful for her that, you know, I was that she was able to do that for me and I was able to reconnect with him because, you know, after I got drafted, um, you know, me and him became, you know, thick as thieves again. We were tight. He was coming out all the time. Um, my first two years in the big leagues, he lived with me and Amber, you know, the whole summer. So, um, you know, we we had a chance to, to really reconnect and um, kind of get back to, to where we were when I was a child. Knowing that, knowing your story about that, I'm just thinking about how much that 
helped you have your own perception of your dad where your mom wasn't like projecting things on. So you had this belief because I've heard you say like, yeah, my dad was, my dad was in rehab. My dad was, my dad had HIV and I never, you know, he, maybe he wasn't there, but I never saw him for that. I was just happy to have a dad around where if your mom was in there chiming in, I think you might have a different attitude and relationship with him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even with the, you know, with the, with the drug use, you know, she never really made that clear to me either. So the first time I went to go see my dad in a rehab facility, I had no idea it was a rehab facility. Me and Amber walk out of the rehab place and my dad couldn't leave the door. And uh, he was like, I just, I could just walk you out to the door and then I got to turn around. And we walk out. I hadn't thought nothing of it. And, and we, me and Amber get to the car and, my, and Amber goes, how long has your dad been in rehab? I'm like, what are you talking about rehab? She was like, Cece, that, that's a rehab facility we just left right there. So, like, I was oblivious to all of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had no clue of what was going on. And, and, and But for the better, to be honest, because I think if had I been worried about any of that stuff or had had any of that ill will in my heart, maybe I don't ha have a chance to get to the big leagues at 20, 19, 20 years old and have all the success and have all these different things going on if I'm – you know, consciously th worried about and thinking about what my dad has going on. Yeah, I mean, I could see all that, how much of that could be a weight as you try to elevate, you know what I'm saying? Like the struggles I had early in my career where I wasn't performing the way that I would have liked to, it was the the mental weights. There was nothing really physically that was holding me back. You know, I feel like I had the gifts and I was, you know, progressing in that way, but it was all the mental and the emotional and uh, the spiritual things that were just having me feeling chained up, man. And it's... uh you know, so that's a really good perspective. Um, staying on your dad, uh, I, I, reading your Players' Tribune essay, you said something about, um, and it kind of touches on mental health, and me and Donnie are always on that, and you talked about how uh, the day you made your first All-Star team, your dad uh, was pronounced with six months to live, I believe, or was it six weeks to live? Six, with, it was uh, six weeks, cancer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, six weeks to live, and you talked about how um, – I can't th think good things will happen without something bad going alongside with it. And it's hard to have faith in the good things lasting. Like what was it like dealing with that and trying to grow out of that mindset? You know what? I still deal with that. I still have to um, mm. let myself be happy in the moment. You know what I'm saying? And not think something's coming on the other side. Um, you know, whether it's, I mean, just small things, you know what I'm saying? Whether it's like, you know, watching my son hit a home run. Then I'm always thinking about the flip side or like, you know, I'm always thinking, you know, just because of that's been, that's been my experience. Every time something good happens in my life, there's something that's, that's probably bad. That's coming around the corner. Um, and, and that, that story that you just said was the perfect example. Um, you know, 2003, um, Amber gets pregnant in January, 2003, um, so we're having our first kid. This is my third year in the league. My dad is living with us at the time. Um, so I'm having a great first half. Um, my dad goes back to California in May to get checked up just to have like a checkup. My dad had, had got diagnosed with HIV in 1999. So he was going back just to have a checkup. Um, he hadn't been feeling that well. Um, so he, he was gone for like two months from June and July. Um, so I'm pitching great. I get a, I get the the Sunday before the All-Star game, I get called into the office, uh, the manager's office, uh, Eric Wedge, and he's like, you know, hey, um, you've been having a great year. 
you know, this is this is I'm excited to tell you that you're going to the All Star game. This is the first of many. Um, you know, blah blah blah, whatever. Uh, you know, all the stories. So we're all excited, everything. And as literally as I'm walking out of his office, my cell phone rings. Like this is back in the day too. Like you had the old Nokia flip cell phones. Like my cell phone rings, and it's my mom. And I and she was like, "Hey, did you hear the news?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm going to the All Star game. Can't wait. We're going to Chicago. Like this is gonna be so much fun." And she was like, "No, your dad's in the hospital, and they're giving him six weeks to live. Like his cancer has progressed, and I think you may need to come home." So I'm like, "Damn! Like this is like I'm literally walking back to my, I'm walking back. I hadn't even told Amber yet. Like I'm walking back to my locker to process. Like I just made the All Star team, and then my mom's telling me my dad." Has six weeks to has six weeks to live. So, um, I, we ended up me and Amber flying back to California. I get back to California. I get into the hospital room where my dad is, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "You just made the All Star game." Me and him watched the home run derby together, and he just begged me to go to Chicago to to play in the game. So I got on the first thing. I got on the first thing smoking the next morning. Made it to Chicago like during BP time of the day of the all-star game and and didn't get the pitch, but that was my first all-star game experience. You know, as you go on from there in your career, um, talked about the times that build up to October, 2015, where you talked about um, your drinking and how you were, you know, in the, in the bathroom as a young dude, like, can you take us through um, progressing through drinking and then, you know, how, you know, the, how the story goes for alcoholics. It's like, eventually it turns on you, you know, it, it eases your anxiety for a bit, but then after a while, you know, the literature talks about you, there's a time where you can't imagine life with or without alcohol. And it's just like this place of, you know, like demoralization. Can you tell us what it was like building up to that time in October when you were in that hotel room in Baltimore? Yeah. I mean, I mean, but you know, going like, like, like Donnie said, you know, we can't tell the end of the story without telling the whole story. I think I knew that I was an alcoholic at 14 years old, I knew the very first time I drank that this is not going to be good for me. Um, the first time I ever drank, I was 14 and it was about three months after my grandfather had passed away. And me and my cousin was just at his house, we were sleeping over. I was sleeping over at his house and he had a pint of bumpy face um, gin, Seagram's gin. And I took a sip of it and I was like, ah, you know, this is nasty. But then I liked the way it made me feel. So then I just like I like my binge drinking. I just ju I just uh, guzzled it. Like I took like four big guzzles of it, and I was like drunk as drunk as could be. And I knew that this is gonna be. I knew it was gonna be a problem. And I always I didn't necessarily so much like to like the taste of alcohol, but I like being drunk. You know what I'm saying? Like I because I'm I, I feel like I'm a shy guy. I don't talk a lot. And when I was younger, it was even worse. And then the more I drank, the more I felt like my personality would show up. And I, and I, it, you know, I feel like I was more social when I was drinking. So I knew that this was eventually going to be a problem. Um, but, but it started day one, 14. Um, and then, you know, I drank all the way through high school, minor leagues. And like I said, you know, being the youngest in the big leagues, you know, you end up being in the bathroom stall, sucking down four or five, you know, six drinks at a time. Um, you know, it got to a point where, you know, the year I won the Cy Young, 2007, before every single start, I would go to a liquor store and buy two bottles of uh, of Cristal. I was drinking champagne back then. And and it was always a reason to drink. Like, I can drink because I pitched great, celebrating because we won, 
And then if if I didn't pitch good, I was pissed off. So I I, I definitely need to drink this. You know what I mean? Like so, it was always it was always a drink in my hand. It was always a cycle. Any clubhouse I went to, they already knew to have my crown and coke in my locker right after the game. Like as soon as I'm coming out of the game, the first thing I'm drinking not Gatorade, not water, not nothing. It would be crown and coke, and and that was in every ballpark. You know what I'm saying? So it, it wasn't a, a thing where, you know. I was, I was, you know, people didn't know that I, that I drank. I don't think people knew that I drank to the extent that I drank where, you know, um, there would be nights, um, you know, when I would drink everything in the mini bar, like everything, the wine, the, the, the whiskey, the bur- everything, every single thing. Um, I can't, I can't count how many, um, how many times I did that just drinking literally everything that they had there. Um, because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. You know, first time in the big leagues being so young, I see a mini bar, I'm drinking it all. You know what I'm saying? So it, it was it was always a problem. And, and you know, leading up to 2015, well, 2012, um, me and Amber go to uh, marriage counseling because it just had got too much for her. And, you know, for me, I, I wasn't ready to stop drinking yet. So I'm going to, to, you know, counseling and doing these different things. And I started taking an abuse. Um, which is a pill that if you if you drink while you take this pill, you'll start throwing up like really bad, like really violently. So I, I could I could figure out, you know, if, if I took this pill like on Monday and Amber seen me take it by the weekend when we would go on the road, if I hadn't taken it, then I can drink while we're on the road. You know what I mean? So that's how I, from 2012 to 2015, that's what I was doing. Like I was at home being sober. But then when I was on the road, I was drinking all the time. Um, so get to 2015, um, you know, um, kind of out of control, to be honest, you know, I'm not really pitching that well. I'm trying to learn a new pitch. I'm trying to learn how to reinvent myself as a pitcher, learning the cutter. And, um, you know, I, I had an incident where I'm in Atlanta, I'm out, um, on the balcony smoking weed. They took a picture of me. Um, I had a big fight in Toronto where I was drunk and, um, you know, made a big scene. And, you know, I, after that, after that Toronto incident, I had felt like I had kind of had enough. I knew that, you know, I needed to go to rehab. I just didn't know how I was going to get to rehab. You know, I didn't know, um, you know, what type of decisions I needed to make or anything like that. And, you know, we get to that weekend in Baltimore and, you know, we, it's, we had clinched on a Thursday and we played Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we got clinched on a Wednesday. We had Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Baltimore. It rained the first two days of that of that series, and I drank. I literally drank myself to sleep those whole days. Like the uh, Thursday and Friday, I drank the whole time. I woke up on Saturday morning. I'm supposed to throw a bullpen at the stadium, um, and I get there, and I, I went right back to the back and started drinking again. So I told him, I was like, let me just throw my bullpen tomorrow. We got the last day of the season. I'll throw it again tomorrow. So I drank that whole day on Saturday, get to my room, drinking. And then that next morning I woke up and and I was supposed to throw the bullpen that day. But again, I got to the stadium again. I was feeling a little hungover. That was my MO. Like if I, if I was feeling a little hungover, the next morning I would I would get back on whatever I was drinking. So I was feeling a little hungover, got to the stadium, made myself a drink. And one of the um, – our, our uh, mental uh, conditioning coach, Chad Bowling, he, he caught me. He was like, bro, what are you doing? You drinking at eight in the morning? And I just broke down crying because um, I hadn't stopped since that Wednesday night. And we went into Joe's office. 
Um, and I told him that I needed help. He called Brian Cashman right away. And then the first two people I went to to tell was uh, Chris Young and Dylan Batantis, um, two of my closest friends to this day. Um, they were on the team at the time. And the first thing both of them said was, you know, you're making the right decision. This is going to be tough right now, but you're making the right decision. And it gave me the courage to go and 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 really go tell the team and and leave at that time. It was it was a tough decision, but I feel like if I didn't make that decision at that time, my life would be completely different right now. So I had heard you say that I need to do this, meaning I need to go to rehab mm-hmm. and I need to make it public or I need to let people know why was that so important and how did you have the courage to do that in New York City, the media capital of the world, like man, it came. It came from Dylan and Chris Young. To be honest, like I didn't have the courage. Like I, I mean, I was scared to death. I, I thought, you know, I thought my career was over. Um, you know, I didn't know how the Yankees were going to react. I didn't know how the fan base was going to react. I mean, you talk about, you know, a fan base that can make or break you, and that's that's here in in, in the Bronx. So um, I really didn't, honestly, didn't know. It, what gave me the courage was Chris Young saying, you know, I know this is a tough decision right now, but this is going to be the best thing that you can do for your life. And that's really what gave me the courage um, to do it. And, and really all my teammates, all the guys, I mean, and the, and the organization, the guys stepped up. They all had my back. Um, Brian Cashman had my back. Joe Girardi, everybody to a man in the organization really, really supported me. And it made me feel like I was making the right decision. But I mean, I was scared to death at the time, and I had no idea if I what I was doing was the right thing. But you know, Big Poppy, when I went into rehab, he reached out. Derek, you know, reached out. Andy, all these different people reached out to me and made me, you know, feel like I was, you know, making the right decision. So, um, yeah. But but I, I I can't sit here and say, hey, I had the courage to 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 do this. It was it was really my friends and and, and family and teammates. Um, that gave me the courage. And, and for me to make it so public, I wanted to make it public because if I'm if I'm at a Raiders game or if I'm at a Giants game and somebody see me walking with a beer, they can check me and be like, hey, I thought you went to rehab or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just another way for people to hold you accountable. And I want to be held accountable, especially with my drinking. Like, I don't want to be sitting in the airport, somebody see me with a drink and be like, take a picture and be like, hey, I thought he was at rehab. You know, I thought he went to rehab. I want somebody to be able to come up to me and confront me and be like, I thought you weren't supposed to be drinking. So that's why I made it so public. That's such a huge shift from um, because I feel like as alcoholics, like we become such isolative people. Um, And that's something that I still try to get over is, um, you know, just no matter how good things are going, I still feel like I had to go hide or to to be safe or be alone. And, um, you know, I always had like certain behaviors that I was hiding in, you know, to get to a place that's the ideal place for an alcoholic to get to, to really start to build a life again is to have other people hold them accountable, invite community into the picture and have real deep uh, friendships and relationships with people to where they can check you because that's really what love is. You know, we get told like, you know, essentially love is telling people what they want to hear, but no, it's like love is checking people and telling them what they need to hear because you know, what they may not necessarily want to hear is what could save their life. So um, anybody that's in that position of struggle, it's like, it's not an easy thing to do to have people in and it's not always comfortable to have people in your business and knowing the intimate details of your life, but it's, uh, it's what's necessary to, for you to continue to build upon what you set and to, you know, enjoy life with people. Cause that's what life is meant to be about. Nah, I mean, that's a hundred percent right. And you said something like for people to check you and I had, I had made myself uncheckable. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like the only person that could have really checked me was my dad. And my dad passed away. So there was nobody here to check me or anything. Like, who the fuck gonna check me doing what? I'm paying for everything. Like, any vacation we go on, my family, anybody we doing anything, it's all on me. So who gonna, who gonna check me? If I wanna have a couple drinks while we on vacation, I'm gonna have a couple drinks. You know what I'm saying? So I had to, I had to reconfigure the way I was thinking and I have to be checkable. Like I have to be able to, to sit here and have my wife check me or my best friend or whoever else. Like you have to, to, to be that vulnerable, to be able to be checkable. And that was something that I wasn't for a long time. Like I said, from 2012, 2015, I was going to counseling with my wife just for her. It wasn't for me. It was like me faking stuff for her. You know what I'm saying? So I had to, I had, I had to really open up and let her check me. She, she can check me. You know what I'm saying? Like she runs it. So, um, you know, you, you have to have those people and be comfortable with those type of people, with, with those people. if you have those people in your life to be able to let them help you and love you, like you said. I love this conversation so much. There's um, staying one more for another minute on that, making it public just for context for the listeners, you had said like it was the last day of the season. It was the last day of the regular season, but you guys were going to the playoffs. So, I mean, if I if I got the timing right, you guys were going to the playoffs. So you're checking yourself into rehab as your team's about to go make a World Series run. So it wasn't like the season's over and nobody's gonna know anything. Like, and and plus doing it in New York City. I mean, I think that's um, it's amazing. And I think in recovery and addiction, they say selfishness and self-centeredness is the core of our disease. And I love that you did it because you needed to be held accountable. And that's why essentially I shared my story publicly, which actually was a selfish move, but it was selfish in a way where I like, I need that accountability. I want this to be part of my identity so that people can check me. So it creates like this massive layer of accountability where now it's like for for Darren and I and yourself, it's it's part of our identity, and it makes it a lot easier not to slip up, you know. No, I mean, and and this is this is gonna sound crazy, but like you know, and like you said, being a recovering alcoholic, like you have to be selfish and think about yourself. It's easy for me to be selfish. I'm a selfish motherfucker. Like I just, I'm always gonna put myself first. You know what I'm saying? Next. Like uh, that's Next. just, you know, that's just how I am, and 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 who I am. That's just the, the kind of the way I was. I'm, that's just the way I'm wired, you know what I mean? So it's it's easy for me to it's easy for me to be selfish. So once I figured that out in rehab, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna be pretty good at this recovering alcoholic thing because I could always be selfish. You know what I'm saying? Like that's 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 not a problem. But the, like you said, checking myself in back going back to to the rehab, that was my rock bottom. Like people always ask me, like, what was your rock bottom? Like, what made you check yourself in the rehab? One, it was me realizing that I couldn't stop drinking. I, like that weekend in Baltimore, I really wanted to stop myself from drinking and I could not stop that 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 whole weekend. So being powerless to, to the alcohol was the was the first thing. But but the, the second my rock bottom was being in that rehab facility in detox. I'm sitting in there with no shoestrings in my shoes. I got on a hoodie. I got on like pajama pants and I'm watching my team play against the Houston Astros in the playoffs like there's a playoff game going on and I'm a part of this organization. This Yankees organization I have on right now are playing in the Bronx and I'm in a rehab facility. Like that made me feel, I mean, it, 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 there was no, uh, I mean, I, I can't even explain how low I felt. 
you know, and, and not being able to be there for my guys. I wouldn't have been pitching. For, I mean, I, no way I was going to pitch that day, but just being there, you know, not not being there killed me. And, and I think being there, it, it would have been a different story. But that was, you know, the, the, the point where I was like, I need to get myself together because look where the fuck you are. You, you couldn't stop drinking that much. And, and now look where you are now. Like, you can't even be there for your teammates. Like, that's how bad you got. So that was really like a, a turning point for me was that day that they played in that playoff game. I'm sitting in the re- I'm sitting in the in the detox place, kind of like just staring at the TV. Like I could I couldn't believe I let myself get to that point. What did what did rehab um, unlock in you and transform in you, uh, just as a man? And then how did that play into the rest of your career um, going forward with a with a fresh perspective? I think rehab for me just gave me a time to grieve. I had never really grieved my father passing away. Um, and two weeks into the um, my rehab stay, we had we did an exercise where you had to write a letter to um, you had to write a letter as a as a family member to you as if you died from alcoholism or as you died um, from whatever your dependency was. So I ended up writing a letter from my son, little C, to me, um, you know, and talking in his voice, talking to me as, as, I, as if I passed away from alcoholism. And I get halfway through the letter and I realize the letter is me writing the letter to my father. Like it's me talking all the things that I miss about my dad and all the, the stuff that I wish he was here to tell me and talk about and the relationship I wish he had with my son, like all these different things that that I'm that that I'm telling myself through my son, I'm talking to my father at, you know what I mean? So um, after that, that day, I remember I called my wife and I was like, like, I feel like it's a like a big weight lifted off my shoulder. Like, like, like I can like I can finally breathe like I like I'm not like pinned down by this thing. And um, and it, it was it was that it was me letting go and um, understanding that I do miss my dad. I still miss my dad. I think about my dad every day. Um, I, w- I still wish he was here to, you know, go see my son play at Georgia Tech, all these different things. But I can't hide from those and run from those emotions. You know what I mean? Um, I think I was trying to use the alcohol to numb from that and, and those emotions and, um, you know, being able to deal with that and grieve and get through those through, through those feelings and work through that process and still work through that process um, is it was was the was the biggest thing for me going into rehab for sure. I love how you mentioned that. Um... I think for me, I could relate a lot when you said, I think it was in the doc, the HBO documentary, how when you went into rehab, you wanted to figure out how you got there and why, or what was wrong with me. And and for me, that was the same thing. I was a college baseball player. um, And going from this baseball player star identity to now a drug addict, like where did it all go wrong? Now I had a massive surgery on my left knee that um, ended everything for me, but just figuring out like what, what happened. And for me, it was actually the loss of my, a loss of baseball, the loss of my purpose. Yes. I had a traumatic surgery on my knee and got prescribed 80 Percocet a week for a month straight and then cut off cold Turkey. But when I really took ownership and stopped blaming everybody else, it was the loss of my identity and the loss of my purpose. And so I'm just curious, we have the gift of addiction where we can find purpose. Like I'm, I'm sure you're good without baseball now. I'm sure you miss it, but you have purpose. You're carrying the message. 
but what, what would you say to other people? And do you, you know, talk to old baseball friends that struggle with that, that transition from baseball into life after baseball? Yeah, no, I, I talk to a lot of, um, you know, different, you know, players and older guys all the time, um, you know, that, that are trying to figure out what their purpose is, you know, after baseball. Um, and for me, I feel like my purpose is my family. Like I'm here and, I, and I'm able to be around and be a dad. And, you know, I feel like I went to rehab to get a second chance to really be here for my, my family. And, and I take that as my job now, you know, being dad, like, you know, being the Uber dad, right? Driving around with my son to baseball practice and um, all these different things. I get a chance to, to be and enjoy now because I don't have alcohol. You know, I think you said something earlier about, um, you know, all alcohol. I think Darren said all alcoholics, you can't imagine alcohol with, with or without your life. Like I couldn't, I couldn't imagine going a day without, you know, be, with, with, with being sober. But now I can't even imagine a day with, you know, drinking. Like my life is so much better now. And people used to say that to me, like people got sober and be like, oh, my life's so much better. And I'd be like, bullshit, like no way. It is, it's so much better. My relationships are better. Um, you know, I'm able to get up and my, my body feels healthier. Like I'm just, you know, in a better space um, because I'm I'm not bogged down and foggy by, from all the drinking. Yeah. And I think to, to double on that, I feel like there's something to be said about people like us that um, make uh, life and sobriety look attractive to people. Because I feel like there's a lot of times where people that may have been sober, it's like, I was just like you, I was like, damn, I'm finna, my life finna be lame as fuck. Like, yep. I don't know what I'm about to do, like, <laughs> you know, but then it's like, you know, now we can take ownership of the fact that, you know, if, if people are going to make this decision to change their lives and turn it around and they don't know what it's going to look like down the road, we have the opportunity to paint the picture for them. Like, Hey, life can be great. Life can be amazing. We can enjoy the simple moments, the, the, the great moments, the vacations, the cool things people get to do, but really like we can take ownership of the fact like, Hey, like they can look at CC, they can look at Donnie, they can look at me and be like, Oh man. Yeah. Like they doing that when they, when they sober, like, Oh man, I didn't think that was even possible. But so, you know what though? Like that's a different perspective that I've taken into account. But I feel like you even more than, than me because you're young. And, and I feel like, you know, I went in at 35 years old, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, it's sure it's, it's fine. People can say, yeah, I mean, you, you went into rehab when you were done partying. You know what I'm saying? Like when you were you were done, but like for you to do it, you know, at the beginning of your career, and then still go on to 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 do all these great things and still be in the league, I think is a is huge, and I commend you for that because I think kids can really look at your story and relate to your story more more so than they can mine. Because I'm, you know, I, I was 35 years old. You're doing this, you know, in the prime of your career. So um, thank you for that, and and you know, I, I definitely commend you for you know always speaking out and being an advocate for, for alcohol dependency for sure. Brings me to a moment of just two weeks ago, uh, witnessing Darren's wedding and being there and just sitting back. And I've got, I've got some video proof of this, but uh, watching him dance, like the, you know, in the middle of the circle, the whole wedding circled around him and he's just dancing solo and he's performing. He's, you know, he's performing up on stage, rapping, <laughs> I'm like, man, like, and just, you know, working with Darren and especially, I mean, he's been good on the sobriety thing, just uh, relationship wise and love and to sit back and just watch and be like, this is all going down and it's pure and it's sober. And that's like me. I thought my life was over when I had to stop getting fucked up, but really it was just getting started. 
it really was. And so, yeah, that was a yeah. beautiful moment, Darren, just watching you, man, dance. And I will still look back at that video and show, show some of my close friends. I'm like, you can have a lot of fun in sobriety. And then my, um, it was crazy because my sponsor uh, officiated the wedding too. And um, not a lot of people know this, but walking down the, you know, I was the first one down there and he was standing down there and he gave me a hug and he was like, you know, you almost missed this, right? And I was just like, it just like floored me, you know what I'm saying? Like, and in that moment of just like, before she walked down the aisle, I was just like reflecting on all the different situations of where it could have went left, where it could have been over for me, where, you know, not just my career, but, you know, my life being in the balance, you know, from overdosing and just things like that. It's just, we don't take those things into account. And, uh, you know, like, even as like, I remember when I was still using, there were times where, you know, I know the consequences, the consequences of my actions and my using are so clear, but I don't even take those things into account. Like I still hold, you know, that feeling or that buzz or that picture I have in my head of when I got, when I'm a couple drinks in and a couple pills in, um, what I feel like then I, I still can't get that out of my head as what's best. You know, I, I, I can't bring up everything that was almost tearing my life down. So that was just a moment where everything was bought full circle. Uh, and there's plenty of full circle moments in my life today. It just leave me just amazed. But it's cool to have those moments though, right? Like it's cool to be able to, I mean, obviously it's hard to go through the stuff that we went through, but it's cool to be able to sit back and reflect and be appreciative in the moment. You know what I mean? Like I feel like now that I'm, you know, sober, I can, I can sit back and I get emotional all the time. Like, I was watching my son. I get a chance. I got a ch chance to see my son play on ESPN the other day. I started crying. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like those little things that I get a chance to appreciate, like as his father and still have him like have our relationship still be there and still be intact. And I didn't, you know, ruin all of that, you know, from my from my alcoholism uh, makes me feel good, man. It, it, it makes me want to stay in, in these moments and, and stay sober. I think of having one of the other gifts of having constant conversations like this especially with other men and part of the the gift of recovery has been able to feel and actually be in our emotions and have three men talking about you know watching our boy and getting emotional and crying and being okay with that and really um, reshaping what a real man looks like these days and to me that's it's all about vulnerability and and being able to feel and that's kind of why Darren and I always wanted to start this mission and create conversations like this. So hopefully we can give people permission uh, to do the same and, and reshape this whole idea of what it means to, to be a man and to man up like all of those things that we were taught and told by our coaches growing up. You know what, man, I, I, Donnie, I had to, uh, my, I have to give my youngest son Carter credit for that because I was, i grew up in the eighties. I grew up in the nineties. Like that's, that's how I was raised. Like, you don't cry, shut up, suck it up, all those different things. And he, I think he was about seven or eight years old and he got in trouble and I'm yelling at him and, and he started crying and I was like, what you crying for? He was like, I'm crying because you're yelling at me. You know what I'm saying? He was like, you want me to calm down, but then you're yelling at me. So it's making me cry, but then it's making you more angry. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he was like, I, I, I wouldn't even give him a chance to work through his emotions. So like he was, he was telling me, you have to give me a chance to work through our emotions and then I'll tell you what's wrong with me. So from that day forward, I've, I've, I haven't yelled at him since. It's been like six or seven years where we can just sit down and talk and have a conversation about anything that's going on with him. And, 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 it's, and it's changed me as a parent and changed the way I think about, you know, 
like you said, being a man and, and how we teach our boys. He dropped that on you at seven years old? Seven years old. That? Yes, oh. he did. <laughs> seven years old. I want to touch on another uh, comeback story that you have. I know that you had, a, I think it was 2018, you had like a heart procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you take us through that experience and what what that was like, the thoughts, the emotions with it, and what it may have taught you? Yeah, so uh, in November 2018, uh, me and my wife, we had celebrated, I think it was 18 years at that point, of marriage, and we had a big, big um, wedding, like a re um, a vow renewal we had in in uh, in Napa. Huge, huge celebration. It was it was crazy. The party was nuts. Juvenile performed. Like it was. I mean, it was it was crazy. So halfway through that party, like I started feeling like my stomach started hurting. Like like I got like nauseous. So I, I like I ran out the back and I threw up and. Uh, and, and honestly, I was still um, I was taking antibuse at the time. So my wife was like, did somebody give you like some champagne or something like that? Like, like, you know, you never really throw up. So didn't think nothing of it. Um, we finished the party, all of that stuff. The In the middle of the night that night, I wake up and I tell my wife, I was like, babe, I'm having a heart attack. Like something's wrong with me. I felt like I couldn't breathe and I had to throw up again. So I ran to the bathroom and I threw up again. And um that was kind of the beginning of it. Uh, all of that, all, all everything that happened. So, um, that I actually went through that for three more weeks where like I was going to the hospital and I was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. They thought it was something with my stomach. They was putting cameras down, trying to figure everything out. And the, but because I was nauseous, that was my symptoms. I was throwing up. So they, they never, you know, checked my heart. Um, so, literally for three or four weeks i'm like i couldn't sleep i couldn't lay over like I, i'm walking up the stairs i'm getting tired um and i went into the stadium i was like because the season's about to start so i was like let me just go in like get a workout in and then maybe i'll just you know bounce back start feeling better i got on the treadmill for like three minutes and i was like killed over and the trainer was like nah you gotta go you need to go to the doctor so i went to the doctor they checked and they, they did a stress test and once they did the stress test, like I started walking on the treadmill and I think I got like a minute and 30 in and I couldn't like I couldn't even like my like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't I couldn't like take a deep breath. And uh, the doctor was like, yeah, we, we got to put a, a stint in right now because uh, we think you're like 95 percent blocked. So like in my artery, the Widowmaker, I was 98 percent blocked and I was I was actually supposed to get on a flight that next day to go to London because the Yankees and the Red Sox were playing in the London series. So I was going over to watch a couple of soccer matches and, you know, be the ambassador for series. And the doc said, if you would have got on that plane to go to London, you probably, you not probably, you definitely would have died. You would have had a, ma- a massive heart attack and died. So um, them catching that and putting that stint in, it was, so that happened. Uh, it was November 18th. We had the wedding. I did that for a whole, uh, it was like a whole month. So I think it was like right after Christmas, like December 27th or 28th when they put the stint in. And, you know, we caught it luckily in time because if not, then I definitely would not be here to be talking to you guys on this podcast. What do your practices look like now? What are your, Darren and I always talk about morning routines and rituals and the things that kind of keep our mind right, keep our body right. What are, what are your practices these days? Man, my morning routine is, routine is I normally get up about um, seven o'clock. I come downstairs. I wake up all the kids. Um, I have 
four kids. One is in college, um, two are in high school, one is in elementary school. So um, I get the girls' car ready to go. I warm it up, do whatever they needs to be done. Um, and then I just I, I come sit in the living room and I do like a little five minute calm app meditation um, before anybody gets up drinking my I have like uh, hot water and lemon. And that's really it, to be honest, like that's that's kind of it. After that, my days get started. I go to the gym and, and do whatever I, I got I got to do after that. Um, as far as like like AA meetings and stuff like that, I don't I, I never did AA meetings. I always went to a, a private therapist, um, which I still see. But I talk about my sobriety all the time to anybody who will listen. So whether it's doing podcasts like this or, you know, somebody will call and say, hey, can you talk to this kid or do this or do that? Then I'm always I'm always willing to, to share my story and talk about the things that I went through. Um, and, and, and those are like my meetings. You know what I'm saying? Getting a chance to, to share and, 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 you know, talk to you guys or whoever it is. Um, you know, I feel like it, it puts me in a good space and, and, and gives me a good perspective. Yeah, I think it's so important to Darren and I have had multiple guests on here that have have that are sober, but have had different paths into getting to getting sober. And so there are many paths to it. We had a, a an author on Holly Whitaker. She wrote a book called Quit Like a Woman. And in that she talks, she talks about it like she's not an AA person, but she's sober. And really the essence is finding purpose, giving back, carrying the message in, in community and and finding um whether it's men or a group of like-minded people that can in a sense keep you accountable or you know we can let everybody else know so the world's keeping us accountable but i do think it's important for people to know that there are many paths but that our way doesn't work and if we keep trying to do it our way like the way we did it before we're going to end up right back where we were and that's that's rehab or that's dead or that's jail and you know what? Like most of the time, we don't realize we have a lot of these support systems already in place. We just haven't been taking advantage of them. You know, um, for me, I, you know, whether it's, you know, a sense of community or somebody to talk to, um, you know, the support system with my mom and my wife and, you know, my teammates. So, um, you know, you most of the time, you know, we, we think we're going on this journey alone, but you don't have to. And I, and I feel like, you know, as alcoholics, we like 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 Darren said, we, we tend to isolate and, you know, to stick to ourselves, but there is this, you know, there are people out there that, that can help us and will help us if you reach out and, and be honest. That's the hardest thing as an alcoholic was to, to admit that I was an alcoholic. That's, that's, yeah, man. I mean, asking for help as men is, uh, is forever going to be a, a crippling thing. You know, I, uh, I, I picture, you know, the heart, like you being on the stage for a world series or in the pressure moments or, you know, for me, like me going over the middle and getting my helmet, my chin strap knocked loose. Like those are things of, of toughness that people may think of that of, of what it takes. But I feel like the toughest thing to do is ask for help or put yourself out there and paint yourself like, man, like I can't do this on my own. You know, and that's a that's a powerful uh, legacy to leave behind uh, a new definition of toughness. You know what I'm saying? So uh, on that note, I want to ask you, uh, you know, as your life goes on, you know, I imagine you being in your forties and I feel like, you know, if you're like me, I feel like life just continues to go by faster and faster. Like, what do you imagine your legacy being at just as a man? And, you know, what are some of those things that you do to uh, further imprint that uh, on the world? I think, you know, hopefully my legacy as a man is just, you know, 
someone who shared his story. You know, I wasn't, I'm not, not wasn't, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm, I'm going to make more mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, but I'm here to share them with you. You know what I mean? I, and I think, you know, for me going back, what I was talking about my, my, my childhood, I was always looking and learning from different people's mistakes. Like, you know, whether it was this athlete or that athlete, or, you know, this uncle, this family member, that family member, like I learned to see the bad stuff. And then I'm going to do the opposite of that. You know, I, I know how I want my life to go and I don't want to do any of those things. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's just, you know, being someone that that was uh, open about everything that I, you know, all the mistakes that I made and, and um, you know, somebody that was that was honest. But I think for my for me, my legacy, hopefully, is just, you know, my name is carried on through my kids in a good way. Um, you know, I think that's that's the only thing you can ask for as parents. Um, you know, that's it, to be honest. I mean, I, I honestly don't want to be remembered as a baseball player. And if people remember me as a baseball player, I just want people to know or remember that I played hard and I was a good teammate. I love that, man. Well, you know, we I introduced you as uh, with your baseball statistics and accolades, but um, hearing you share and getting to have this conversation with you, uh, you're a lot more than that. And uh, I appreciate you coming on here and being open and vulnerable in the way that you have and I feel like you will be remembered for far more than that and uh, I definitely feel like I'm a better man walking away from this today just by having this conversation so I uh, just want to say thank you man. No I appreciate it man thanks for having me I'm, I'm sorry this took so long man uh, but you know I'm glad that we was able to get this done and and uh, like I said I commend you for you know walking this path and and obviously being a, a phenomenal football player but this this journey that you're on in sobriety and mental health and being honest and letting people know what you're going through is going to change a lot of lives, man. So I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks CC. It's an honor, man. It's an honor to have you on here. I keep thinking about the visual of uh, you, your wife had mentioned how on the, on the mound, you were like a grizzly bear. And then when you were drinking, you like turned into the Hulk. Right. And I feel like you've, you've found your way <laughs> into like, when you talk about legacy, it sounds like you, I know for me, it's like breaking some generational dysfunction and being the change. And I know you grew up with addiction and alcoholism around you and now how you show up for your, for your family and you're warming the car up for your kids and being there. You are, you're changing the legacy and that's, that's the legacy that I see and admire the most and also just your transparency. And, you know, I think all three of us can say that we're just, you know, turning our mess into our message and it's really given us a purpose beyond whatever the the label of the position we play or the role that we're in. So thanks for these conversations, man. We, we really appreciate it, man. That's awesome. Thank you, Donnie. I, I like that. I'm turning our mess into the message. Like I, like I can do that all day. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Donnie got bars. Donnie, Donnie got bars. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right. Thank you, my man. We're out. Yeah. appreciate you, man. But yeah, no problem. Thank you.